Hi, everybody. Welcome to the April 10th, 2015 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on a bill that would require marijuana shops to display signs warning pregnant women of the dangers of smoking pot while pregnant. Some lawmakers are questioning the constitutionality of the bill since bars and restaurants do not have to have the same mandate for alcohol. Patty Cahoon from Westward, uh, do you think this is going to get to Hickelooper's desk and do you think it's fair? Well, I think it's stupid, but unfortunately you cannot legislate against people being stupid, whether they're lawmakers or people who are buying pot or drinking beer. Of course it isn't treating pot like alcohol. If you have to put up the signs, it's expensive. It's not really necessary. If they want to have it on labeling for edibles, which they're tinkering with, that's fine because that's the same as what we have on alcohol. Amy Oliver Cook, uh, an executive vice president of the Independence Institute and uh, always a, a good friend of the panel. Uh, what do you think the proposed bill is going to go anywhere? Well, here's hoping it doesn't because, listen, I, to the pot industry, police your own. Seriously, because I've got three words, big tobacco settlement. If you don't fix this, if you don't do it on your own, you're going to have bigger problems that this bill won't solve. Eric Sonnen, political analyst, it, it seemed to me that this was just trying a, a solution and look in search of a problem, but I don't know, maybe I'm being short-sighted. What do you think? No, you're not being short-sighted. I mean, uh, it scares me that I'm agreeing with you, Dominic, and Patty, <laughs> and Amy. We'll see where, good, good luck with that, Eric. We'll, we'll see where Penn comes in. Of course, uh, marijuana is ill-advised if you are pregnant. Many other things are also ill-advised if you are pregnant. Most women, I have to believe, know that. The women who might not know that, I am not sure they're going to be all that influenced by a bit of signage. I, I, I agree with your analysis, Dominic. A solution in search of a problem, or even more so, maybe the wrong solution in search of the problem. <laughs> and Penn State Attorney Greenberg Traurig, also a longtime state lawmaker. Uh, I know these aren't your colleagues because those colleagues aren't at the, uh, the Capitol anymore, but. Does this smell like something you're used to seeing at the Capitol? A couple are, and we have made history today because we all agree. It's like <laughs> putting up a sign saying, don't run with scissors in your hands. Your parents used to always tell you, um, this makes no sense. Uh, you, you can't legislate common sense, and people just need to use common sense with regard to any product they may use, not just marijuana. <laughs> Enough said. Enough said indeed. Progress on the state budget at the legislature may be in jeopardy after the House attached funding for a controversial birth control program that, as it passed, the $25 billion budget. The bill now goes to the Joint Budget Committee that tried to get the, the combination between the Senate and the House together, but Republicans already have balked at the addition of the program. Patty, the, the, the budget is ginormous for the state of Colorado, and there's this one little, you know, you know, a $5 million program, that's nothing to sneeze at, but in a $25 billion budget, it's a pretty small section. Is that a poison pill? Is it going to throw off the entire budget? Probably, but what we have here is a people who are not going to be able to meet in the middle, and that's what they're going to need to do on a variety of different issues. So it's not just the budget. We've got the construction defects bill, the testing and pulling back on testing bills that are being considered, and I think it's going to get a lot uglier in the weeks to come. 
This program, which is $5 million well spent, I think, but we used to have it subsidized by a private donor. Maybe what we can do is ask the pot industry to put up the $5 million to pay for a really great program that will prevent pregnant people from walking into shops <laughs> and buying pot. Uh, it seems an easier solution. I don't think we're going to see that happen either. We are instead going to have fights because it's not going to be how practical this program is and how much it has cut down on unwanted pregnancies and all the other issues that follow from there. It is going to be where some Republicans are going to draw a line in the sand and say we cannot possibly subsidize this. So we're going to hear a lot about it next week. Uh, Amy, as you look at this, this big budget and the, the Senate Republicans and the Democrats leading the House, is this going to be the issue they have a showdown over or is this just one of many that's distracting everybody? Well, it's kind of funny. It's not just Republicans that are pushing back. You have some Democrats that are concerned about how this process came along. Dickie Lee Hollinghorst, speaker, even scolded her own caucus saying, hey, get together. This is one of our priorities. But here's the reality. We have a divided legislature. So you have Republicans in control of the Senate and you have Democrats in control of the House. Your JBC is three and three. It couldn't be any more bipartisan. So uh, it, my feeling is, I, it, and I could be wrong, but this will go to JBC and JBC will do what JBC does, which is decide. And I mean, we sort of play the charade where everybody, each chamber gets their say and they may get a little give and take, but for the most part, and. We'll hear more about this from our legislator on the panel, but JBC will probably... <laughs> former legislator. Yeah, yeah, former we don't legislator. The former, yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, it pro I don't see this hanging up the budget. I see it being more of a, a political posturing, a news story that we all want to talk about. JBC will resolve it one way or the other, and it'll be done. Eric, what do you think? Does JBC uh, nip this in the bud? I don't know how it ultimately gets resolved. It will. They're not going to scuttle a $25 billion budget over this. At some point, somebody's going to blink. The question is, when is that point and who's doing the blinking? I think it's both parties playing to their bases right now and, and trying to draw lines in the sand. On this one, I'm critical of the Democratic base on some issues. On this one, I happen to think they are right. I mean, both polls on the whole abortion debate, which is what we're talking about, can be wacky. Um, and, uh, and for the pro-choice movement, the notion, you know, that some fully viable fetus has no rights, that's equally wacky. But here, you're trying to prevent teen pregnancies. The notion of IUDs as some kind of code for abortion, I don't get it. Um, and uh, so I, I'm hoping, ultimately, that this thing does stay put. Patty analyzed it right. It started with private funding. Now you need the state to, to pick it up in the big scheme of things to prevent, you know, a, a, a fair number of teen pregnancies. It strikes me as a worthwhile financial investment. Penn, you've seen behind the curtains. You've seen how all this works. What do you think is going to happen? You know, this is an interesting debate because um, typically the, the battle is there's not enough money to fund everything, but we're a victim of our own success because now we're pushing up against the Tabor limit. And what the JBC did this year is they actually set aside five million for each chamber to fund things over and above what was put into the budget. And, and so we're not watching legislators fight over a scarcity of resources. This is the allocation of money that was designed to let each chamber make a decision. Uh, this could be an interesting battle because you, you, what you've got is an existing program, so it's not a new program like some people have said. The funding source is different, but the program itself has remained. And so, but what's interesting here is 
the, the conference committee on this bill will be the JBC, but under the JBC rules, two members of each chamber have to approve it. And so since it's a it's a 3-3 split, but it's two Senate Republicans, one Senate Democrat, two Democratic House members, and one uh, Republican House member, so you've got to get at least one of the Republican senators to sign off on the compromise. And so I wouldn't be surprised if this sort of lingered out there for a while. What, what, the, what the, the two chambers will do is now that the budget's written, they'll start going into appropriation committee and start killing all the bills that they don't have money for. And this may, we may see this hang out there for another week or so before it gets resolved. But Eric's right. Someone's going to have to blink because it's going to take four signatures to approve the budget with this funding in it. Should be a fun game of chicken to watch. It'll be interesting. The ballots for Denver's municipal election go out on Monday, featuring 50 total candidates for the 13 seats in the council. There are six open seats in the council, and those races represent 29 of the candidates, with nine running in District 7 alone. I can speak from experience here. We've started our city council debates here on Channel 12. You saw a pretty couple of them earlier tonight at 7 and 7.30. We'll be featuring two more. In fact, District 7 will be next Friday at 7 and 7.30, and, and then Districts 10 and 11 the following Friday. So be sure to tune in for that. Uh, Amy, I think as, as someone who loves public policy and all this kind of stuff, I love the fact that so many people want to get involved with city council. But um, 50 people is a lot of people <laughs> for a council. Uh, as ballots go out next week, what do you expect to see? Well, I got to tell you, first of all, if you're not running for District 7, stand up. Because, <laughs> um, you know, I, I actually, and as somebody who, who studies public policy, I love local elections. I love them. I find them to be more interesting. Um, it's also, they're also really important because it's oftentimes where our future state or, um, you know, state officials, that's where they cut their political teeth. So while we're talking about, oh my gosh, there are 50 people or, I mean, there, there will be people who stand out. And the other thing about this too, that I think is, is great that people being involved, one, is they have to be more creative to stand out. So you get a guy who put his name on a pizza box. Great idea. Good for you for thinking outside the box. <laughs> um, <laughs> a really bad pun. Um, but the, um, th these are important elections. These are really, because this is where our state, um, our future state leaders, look at where Bill Ritter, uh, former DA, uh, John Hickenlooper, former mayor of Denver, these are important elections. Here's the thing, though. You're starting to really see how important they are, and people are recognizing it by the amount of money that is being invested. So worth watching, very interesting, but we aren't the only ones picking up on that. Uh, Eric, I know um, you and I were both talking about in the last couple of months we're lamenting the fact that it has been a very quiet election without a real serious mayoral contender. Um, Really, we haven't had much to talk about. Finally, we're here. It's the election, all these candidates. What do you, you think is going to be the big issues that will come from the election? Well, in the big picture, compared to other citywide elections every four years, this one is something of a yawner. If you're one of those nine candidates in District 2, no, it's already, excuse seven. me, District 7, it is not a yawner, and you and your passionate supporters are deeply involved. But the ultimate agenda usually gets a set, or the ultimate tone usually gets set by the mayoral race. And obviously we do not have a mayoral race here, which I think puts a, a pall on the whole thing. And the, the, you know, there's just not that much attention yet being paid, except in a few individual districts. 
de-issue uh, de this time, and it's taken me somewhat by surprise that the speed at which it's gained traction is just the whole development issue. And in a number of districts, the feeling that the rate of growth, and in some cases the type of growth, is beyond what residents want. In some ways that's a good problem to have. It shows the economy is back, the economy is, 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 is moving along. Um, we weren't having that same discussion a handful of years ago. But nonetheless, it's the discussion we have now in various parts of Denver, from Crestmore on the east to northwest Denver to whole other parts of Denver. It was, incumbents are notoriously hard to defeat. Penn and I were talking before the show. We can't, it's hard to remember, you have to go back maybe three decades, the last city council incumbent to lose a seat in Denver. Incumbents almost automatically get reelected. The only new faces come about due to term limits or, or an incumbent not running for re-election for one reason or another. It would not totally shock me to see some incumbent, I don't know who it is, but some incumbent lose a seat here based around the growth issue and all its different offshoots, and we'll have to wait and see. Penn, we talk about Denver uh, in the November elections. It's always pretty homogenous. It's all Democratic. We don't even think about how it might be a, a swing city. But now when you're just within the city of Denver, there's a lot of politics involved that may not be partisan, what we're used to talking about in Novembers, but there's still a lot of passion involved. How do you think it's all going to come out? You know, it's going to be interesting, and I, and I agree with Amy. The reason I like local politics is they're not partisan races, so you're forced to focus on issues and sometimes on personalities, and that's what all of these elections are going to boil down to. The, the real distressing thing from my point of view is because there's not really a contested mayoral race, or maybe if there was, it wouldn't matter, but there's almost no broad focus on the elections whatsoever. Um, I was at a, a political event last night for one of the council candidates, and one of the supporters there was asking, wouldn't it ballot come out. Uh, you know, it's, it's basic things. People just don't have a clue because it, it seems like the media, and I, I use that to encompass more than, than just us, but <laughs> print and everything else, no one's focusing on it. No one's talking about issues. But I think Eric's really hit on, on the, the key determiner. When you look at a number of the districts, you, you see a lot of candidates who are now getting pegged as the developer's candidate. And I think that people in this community, while they, they, they're glad that the economy is recovering and that we're seeing some growth, are getting concerned because I think there's the perception that this administration, I'm not necessarily talking about the mayor, but the city government overall, is favoring any type of development perhaps at the expense of what folks are used to having in their communities. So it's going to be interesting to see how that element plays out. And the development community has sunk a lot of money into some of these council candidates. It's going to be interesting. Patty, wrap it up for us. What do you think? Well, and they're still sinking a lot of money into Michael Hancock's campaign, which is over a million dollars when, really? <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see where he's going to use that. I, I've been redistricted into District 1, so Northwest Denver, we're talking about what a flashpoint it is with an, someone challenging incumbent, an incumbent, and development has become the huge issue, and the discussion is getting very fugly in Northwest Denver. People are upset about development, and I wish what we were having right now was a citywide discussion, which we would be having if there was a really strong, uh, any kind of real contender for mayor, mayor, because people are concerned with what Michael Hancock's administration has done. Ballots come out Monday, and there's a new design. You no longer have to draw up between the arrows. You fill in a circle. Whew. Our long national nightmares over. <laughs> <laughs>
Governor John Hickelooper wrote a letter to lawmakers this week possibly threatening to veto a bill that would move the child abuse watchdog position from the executive branch to the legislative branch. Hickelooper wants the ombudsman to stay in the executive branch through a type one transfer granting more independence, but child advocates disagree. Eric, this seemed like a very important issue that confused me very quickly, and I didn't know about the differences of between what branch or the other, but I do remember seeing an awful lot of stories about child welfare and that a lot of folks want to see that improved. I don't know how this all comes together, but what did you make of the letter and Governor Hickelooper's stance on this issue? It was interesting in the sense that this is not a governor who's used a veto pen very much. He's been criticized for completely lacking a veto pen when some people thought maybe he should pull it out uh, more frequently. The fact that he has picked this issue to threaten that veto on strikes some people, myself included, as rather curious. For someone to understand this issue, you need to go back to a good Denver Post story written by Jennifer Brown. I believe the date on it was March 31st, so 10 days ago or something like that. And Jennifer did an effective job of exposing a lot of political influence, not in the Hickenlooper, not in the upper echelons, nowhere near the governor, but down in the bowels of the Department of uh, Health and Human Services bureaucracy, where where this responsibility and this ombudsman currently resides. In an ideal world, you would think, no, the legislature should not be running watchdog programs outside, perhaps, of the auditor's function. That, you know, that's an executive branch function. Go government should run out of the executive branch, not out of the legislative branch. But here, given the history we've had in Colorado of problems with child welfare, you do need an effective watchdog, ombudsman kind of role. And given Jennifer Brown's story in the Post, you question about how that is being carried out as currently structured in the, department, uh, the, the Human Services Department. So I don't know how it ultimately comes down. It's, it strikes me as curious where I started that this is where Hickenlooper is going to draw the line on this particular issue. Penn, what do you think? Do you agree with Governor Hickler's position? I do because it's the principle, and Eric touched on it. The legislative branch passes laws, including the budget. They're only in town 120 days a year. They're gone 245 days. They're not equipped, structured, nor constitutionally is it anticipated they should be running state government on a day-to-day -day basis. That's the prerogative of the, the executive branch and the governor. And so I think just for that technical reason, his threat of a veto is appropriate. Now, what the legislature ought to be doing is looking at the Jennifer Brown story and some other things and determining what sort of legislation is needed to put some more guardrails on the program and to make sure that there's more reporting, more transparency, but that the ombudsman's office is really getting the authority it needs to do what it ought to do. But moving into the legislative branch is absolutely the wrong way to do this. As a state, we've gone too far with some of these type one agencies where the legislature sort of wants to dally in running parts of state government, which they're really not constitutionally authorized to do nor practically equipped to do. So I think the governor's threat in this instance is the right thing. It's too bad it's this subject matter that's caused this friction because this is a difficult subject for him because there are problems with how his administration has sort of dealt with the ombudsman's office. Patty, with all the focus on child welfare in this whole office, is uh, the governor making the right stand? Well, I think given what both Penn and Eric talked about, the fact that 
you have a legislature that is not there year-round to monitor this. What we need to have is more oversight, not less, and not make this more political. This structure is new for the Ombudsman Office, so no one wants more kids to be harmed. You have to think they're, they're going into it with the best possible intentions. We have other new programs. We've got call-in centers. There's a new call-in number. There are a lot of different programs the state has initiated to end the problems, but clearly the legislature would be smart to put maybe some more oversight in the program, but they can't run it themselves. Amy, do you think the legislature is going to respond to the letter the way the governor wants them to? Boy, there's a good question, but it isn't just this issue that the legislature and the executive branch are butting heads. You see it with the health care exchange. You see it with uh, the uh, Electric Consumers Protection Act. So this is, this is just one of several issues where the legislature, frustrated with the executive branch and their actions, are um, looking to, to obviously exert their influence in a way that uh, whether you agree or disagree, they certainly ha have uh, a responsibility to Coloradans and might be more oversight, but I don't think the governor is going to get exactly what he wants from the legislature. Let's get a quick, uh, quick take on this final one. The University of Colorado at Denver released a report this week that claims homelessness is being criminalized in Denver. Meanwhile, more complaints are being heard around uh, the, about the general lack of public restrooms in downtown Denver, leading to other problems regarding the homeless. Uh, Penn, what did you think of the report and the claims made? You know, first I would note it's, it's homelessness isn't being criminalized just in Denver. It's a metro area-wide problem. And, it, and it's really disheartening when you, when you look at the report. To me, it's disheartening because this is one of those issues that I think we have the resources at state and local governmental levels to address it. We just don't have the political will or desire to fix it because some of the fixes sort of rub people the wrong way from a social policy point of view. Um, they're, they're uncomfortable. It's a siding issue where you place appropriate shelter. But this is a solvable problem, and we ought to solve it, rather than making people who are already in an unfortunate situation further victimizing them. Uh, and my hope is that the report may get some folks in government at all levels, state and local government, to sit down and talk about some comprehensive solutions. We have the resources to fix it. We just have to decide we want to address this issue. Patty, your thoughts? Well, and we will have the state talking about it next week because the right to rest, which is kind of the precursor of a homeless bill of rights, is being introduced in the legislature next week. So they'll be using this report, which is Metro, to talk about the entire state. But we do need to separate out a few things. The bathroom issue, as we will all see this afternoon when people leave Coors Field, <laughs> is not a problem just for the homeless. Public restrooms is something Denver should be dealing with. Amy, what do you think about the report and or the restroom problem? Well, only if they have way more women's restrooms than they have men's, so that, just like they have at, at Mile High Stadium and at Coors Field. Um, no, you know, criminalizing it, it, homelessness, it's sort of one of those things you have a right to not, if you, if, if you want to be, if you don't want to have a home, I mean, I just think somebody has a right to, to make that choice. But I do think, um, I, I don't like how we, we simplify it with, and call it homelessness, when there's really, as Bob Cote pointed out so many years ago, there's a difference between people who live on the streets and people who are truly homeless, and you can't lump them all together. And so you have to have the political will um, that we've discussed here, the political will to fix it. I'm just not certain that we do. We're 10 years after a fact, and I have yet to see it. So profile and courage for anybody who wants to stand up and fix it. Eric, your quick take. 
I'm going to go where, where Amy ended. We tend to regard homelessness as a monolith and homeless people as sort of a monolithic demographic. They're not, they're, they're people who are homeless for economic reasons. There are people who are homeless due to addictions. There are people homeless for other reasons. And you, one strategy is not going to do it. You have to understand what the population is that you're dealing with, and the population is not a monolith. The idea of criminalizing homelessness does nothing for me. As Patty says, these are people, by and large, who've already been victimized by economic circumstances or addictive behavior or whatever. Um, to criminalize it further is not the way to go. But other people have rights, too, and you can disincentivize it and discourage it and try to structure where it is going to take place and under what ground rules. So homeless people are not the only ones with rights in this equation. Two minutes left in the show. Time for favorite part, but do it rather quickly. Disgrace of the week. You know, the strange ongoing story of Christopher Booker, who's now been charged in the incident in which Officer Adsett was hit back in December. He maybe falsified his driver's license, didn't talk about a medical condition. But a good story on that is that Officer Adsett's throwing out the first ball at Coors Field today. Here, here. Amy. Uh, Conservation Colorado for their transparency for ratepayers is somehow red tape. It's sort of an awkward position to take in opposition to the ECPA. Eric. How about our local frontier airlines? <laughs> the FAA just rated them the worst in the country, worst airline in terms of basic customer service metrics. When you're rated below Spirit Airlines, uh, you know you're hurting and it's uh, shameful what's become of that operation. It's not a local issue, but Joseph Sarnayev, the more I read about that trial in Boston, I, I just get very deeply disturbed. Um, and now he's blaming it on his brother who's dead. It's weird. We can end on a high note, say something nice, still rather quickly. Patty? For a discussion of development in Denver, join the Denver Fugly Facebook page. <laughs> Amy. Okay, uh, profile and courage, say something nice. Representative Joe Salazar, for his openness to discussing expanding magazines, capacity to 30 rounds, eventually leading to what I think will ultimately be a repeal of the magazine ban. Eric. Two very quick ones. Happy 19th birthday to my son, Clark. And uh, it's opening day. The Rockies are 3-0. and We'll see how long they can pull <laughs> it off. But as we tape it, first pitch is only about an hour away. So that's a good day. A story I was pleased to see where sometimes um, trailblazers aren't acknowledged in their day. I was really pleased to see Spencer Haywood admitted to the, Den the, the Hall of Fame, mm -hmm. a former Denver Rocket, a guy who caught a whole lot of static but was a phenomenal basketball player um, and it, it's just it, you know he had some difficult times with addiction later in his life but it was just kind of rewarding to see that that work out for him there's time and that is all the time we have tonight for the show thanks for tuning in remember that if you miss any part of the show or want to catch our web exclusive segment cio post game check out cpt12.org or youtube we've started our look at the denver city council races so be sure to check those out online or every friday at 7 p.m for everyone here at Channel 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for watching. Good night.